Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're not already with the woman of your dreams and you're ready to finally find her so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. Have you ever needed answers that you couldn't find? Have you ever been so desperate for solutions that you had to create them yourself? That's how I felt when I first came out and was struggling with dating women, which is how I ended up putting together all the ideas that I now share on my website and in my classes. So many of the greatest ideas and creations in the world come from people who start off not being able to find what they need and end up making it themselves and then sharing what they made with others. And that's what queer entrepreneur Andrea Barica did when she founded O School, a sex ed resource for people who come from religious conservative backgrounds. And in this episode of Women Wanting Women, Andrea tells us all about it. Andrea was brought up in a religious Catholic Filipino family. And when she was first coming out, she felt like there were no resources to help her face the sexual shame that haunted her from her upbringing. But Andrea found the answers that enabled her to heal both her own sexual shame and also that of her parents. And now she's sharing those answers and much more with the world through O-School. O-School is dedicated to medically accurate, judgment-free conversations about sex and sexuality and pleasure. And Andrea's mission is to create the world's most trusted sexual wellness brand to help people improve their sexual health and celebrate their bodies without shame or stigma. During the interview, Andrea offers what I think is some of the best advice I've ever heard in my life for the most effective way to talk to our parents when coming out, and you don't want to miss that. Plus, she also shares a whole bunch of juicy, interesting questions that she gets from readers and her favorite answers to those questions. But before I give away any other surprises, I'm going to stop so you can enjoy my interview with Andrea Barica. Andrea, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's so great to meet you and connect and talk together. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us about your background and how it is that you came to create this company that you created. Sure. So I actually started my career in a really sexy industry before this. It was actually accounting software. I, I, I built a software that helped small businesses manage their back office. I did that for a bunch of years with another woman and learned a lot about startups, started to create, like create a career around building things. And from there, I actually spent some time in venture capital. The entire time that I was building technology companies and really spending a lot of time on the internet, I was personally really struggling with sexuality. I was in the closet. I knew I, I loved women when I was five years old, but I grew up in a really conservative, religious, Filipino, Catholic home. And so I had 
all of these issues that I was dealing with and the internet wasn't solving them. So I was spending all day building internet companies, investing in internet companies. But when I was dealing with my own sexuality, it was like Planned Parenthood or Pornhub and a lot of harassment and dick pics. And that's what kind of drove me to kind of drop everything and build O-School. Today, we are a trusted, judgment-free resource for everything sexuality and dating. We build videos, content, anything that's going to help people overcome sexual shame, come out, and live their best sexual lives, and we do it completely online. That's amazing, and it's a really needed resource. I'm curious, because I remember when I first came out dealing with trying to date women for the first time, I also felt very frustrated by the lack of resources. What were you looking for? What were the specific questions you were asking back then? What, what were you hoping to find? I was dealing with a lot of religious shame. Like, I think a, a lot of the resources that I was finding was like, just talk to your family. And they were kind of making it about dating women. But actually, you know, there was definitely questions and issues I had there. But most of my kind of problems and trauma was around how, like, how do I repair my my family relationship? Because it was so important to me. And what I also was trying to look for were resources for dating different types of bodies. And uh, I fell in love with a trans man in, in, on a business trip, for example, and I'd never been with a trans man before. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And when I was researching it, it was I was getting a lot of porn. I was getting a lot of things, trying to show things really explicitly. But especially you know, a few years ago, I wasn't really ready for all of that. I could just imagine back then wanting to to have real answers to your question about how do you enjoy making love with this trans man that you were dating and all you're getting is porn or to want to understand how to repair your family and all you're getting is advice that doesn't really apply to someone maybe from your religious background saying, Oh, just were they, were you able to tell them at first you said family repair? Did they know? Well, I had a couple of really traumatic experiences. Like when I was 14, my parents caught me with a woman and told me that if I told them that I was a lesbian, that my baby sister wouldn't be able to sleep in my bed anymore. And it was just such a singular experience of trauma that I was just completely repressed after that. I married young after that, like totally just started denying that part of myself because of that experience. And so when I got divorced, that was kind of the time that I started really repairing with my uh, repairing the relationship with my parents. And, you know, they apologized. It took years and years and years to do. But for me, it was more about reintegrating that part of me and not having to live essentially a double life anymore. It was really important to me to have my family, but also to explore you know, the relationships that I wanted to have. I think a lot of us, when we come out, I know for sure I had to, it took a lot of time to repair my relationship with my mother. Do you have any advice for what helped? I actually, you know, okay, well, in addition, my advice for what helped me is a combination of therapy and self-care, right? There had to be a basis of support that didn't come from my family that I was able to unlock. But when I meet people of all ages, I also do college tours. So I speak to a lot of young people as in addition to people coming out later in life. And my advice to all of them, especially around family, is actually to be curious and ask questions. And instead of it being a one-way uh, inquiry from the parents to the queer kid, I tell queer people to ask their parents really simple questions like, where did you learn about sex, mom and dad? Or who taught you this? And you, I actually found that most of the healing came there. 
mostly because I started to learn things about my parents that I had never known. And not only did that build kind of just a basis of empathy and a basis of, okay, my parents are imperfect humans and I have to forgive them because this is a cycle that isn't just about me. It also helped them kind of connect back to times in their life where they were shamed, where they were told wrong information and they started to connect the dots themselves where, where I think a lot of people want that validation and want that for good reason. What helped me was to help my parents heal through their own traumas. And then suddenly it was like overnight, they were really open and accepting to the things that I wanted. It was interesting. I think there's, especially in Filipino culture, and I think a lot of communities of color, you therapy is not a thing. Feelings are not really a thing. Like you don't really talk through those. So modeling that and taking a little bit of the things I was learning in therapy and exposing them to it was a way to get them to open up. Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. This is some of the best advice I've ever heard. And I love how you framed it. And it reminds me of a concept from something I study called neuro-linguistic programming. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called you go first. So if you want someone else to enter a certain state, then you model that state for them. So that approach that you took where you were really being curious and you were trying to understand your parents and you were really trying to get deep into their perspective gave them, it sort of opened the door so that your group activity was was an activity of curiosity and getting to know each other better and, and openness. And you really set the stage for that openness. And I agree with you, so many of us, and I made the same mistake as the one that you're describing, is coming in being like, this is what's true about me and you're going to have to accept it, which is more of an aggressive approach and not necessarily, and this is a mistake I know I made with my parents, is not being sensitive to what they were going through and to really be able to ask how that must have felt for them to be going through what they're going through as I was making a change that that would, of course, impact my parents and bring up all whatever shame that it brought up for my mother, for example. So I love, this is some of the best advice I've ever heard. And so then... How long did it take of conversations like that with your parents before they really started to get to the other side of it? A few years. I would definitely say that right now is the best it's ever been. And there's so much just authenticity and great communication between us. But that took a, a while. And I also tell people that I coped as a younger person by lying constantly. And I saw that as an act of self-preservation. And so some of the things that had to change, you know, had to come from them. They had to be less judgmental. They had to have an open mind. They had to react less. But I also had to do the work of not hiding absolutely everything about me <laughs> to them. And so I would say that that took a couple years. But what I, what I found was the more that I learned about them, the more that they wanted to tell me about them too. And I think that shame is this really powerful force of silence. You just create this vacuum where everyone is hiding, everyone is afraid. And and I tell people who come to me with similar issues that it's going to take time and it's okay to preserve yourself on that time. But like you said, you have to go first. And I love how what you talk about is once you opened the door to your own curiosity, they wanted to tell you about themselves. And they too wanted to overcome their own shame and maybe their own lying or maybe their just lack of looking at themselves. And there was an urge coming from within them to share, which is so beautiful. And you gave, it's like you gave them a gift because maybe they would have otherwise lived with their own shame for the rest of their lives, for example. Oh, yeah. They're both so 
supportive of old school. My dad's building a giant clitoris, for example. He's like a word worker, woodworker, and I have these clip models that I bring all over the place and present with. And he was like, you need a better clitoris model. So he's actually building me one. And my mom ended up being just so enthusiastic about the sex ed courses that we offer. Uh, my mom grew up in very conservative religious Manila in the Philippines and never rode a bicycle, literally never learned to ride a bicycle because she was told that her hymen would break and she wouldn't be in a virgin, like that level of of conservatism. And the more that they, they learned, we learned about each other. It's really informed how I've built O school because it's not just for the younger version of myself. It's the younger versions of my parents. My brother and sister and I are all accident children who are the product of bad sex ed in the Philippines. I say so in, in a lot of these, in a lot of these situations, I think that children, it's hard because our parents are supposed to parent us, but so many people grow up with such bad and traumatizing childhoods that a lot of that trauma just gets passed down. And so I tell queer people, like you have the opportunity to heal generations after you and above you. And I think that that's actually what queerness gives us an opportunity to do. Yeah. And it's beautiful when it really works. I think it's so inspiring because it's easy for me to tell people it gets better but I really do come from a relatively sexually liberal, liberated parent. You know, we don't, I don't, I don't come from a very conservative household in that sort of way. Although in some ways it sounds as though your parents got over it faster. It took my mom a bit longer than what you're, what you seem to be describing. But even still, when I tell people it gets better because it does, and my mom and I are, are doing great now, or we have a wonderful, beautiful relationship. But then I'm always afraid when I give that advice that, that it's not fair for me to say it because I'm not speaking of, as someone who came from a religious family. But you really came from the most conservative, most religious type of family. And you found your parents were able to get through it. They were able to get over it. And that must be just so encouraging for when you when you travel around and say that to young people. Well, actually, it just happened in Kansas City. I was in Kansas City last week and a young person came up, not with the queer issue, but basically her, uh, she got sick and her mom found her birth control and freaked out, similar family to mine. And I had to kind of explain also that sometimes parents don't come around and I try to soothe them that at the end of the day, they have to do what's best for them. And if that involves cutting your parents completely off, I support that too. So I try to offer both in that, yeah, my parents came around, lots of Filipino parents never come around. I know children of parents just like this. And so I try to give a playbook of, you know, here's the strategy to try, but at a certain point that is not working. It is also really important to cut off super toxic people who aren't willing to change. And I was so lucky that my parents were not only open to changing, but they're thriving now and they're thriving. Uh, but again, that's, I won't say that's even typical. Like I would say it's, it's like 50-50 <laughs> in my experience. Which is so tragic because if I really had to choose between my family and everything else, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do if I had to. It certainly wasn't easy when I came out and my, my parents or my mom was furious at me for many years, but... But at the end of the day, she still called me every day. She called me every day and was mad at me, but she still called me every day. Um, I don't know what I would do if I if I ultimately had to to choose. And I, it's so tragic because you are right that they're probably that it can often come down to fifty fifty, and you don't know. My heart just breaks even thinking about it. But so walking back to creating O School, 
walking back to when you're coming out of the closet and then on the path to creating O School, what, what was the need that you were specifically trying to solve there? What were you really hoping that O School would turn into and how did, what were the steps you took to, to get it there? Coming from the venture capital and technology world, I definitely was driven by the mission and helping a billion people. Like for, for a while, I was obsessed with this question of like, what would it look like if a billion people didn't have sexual shame anymore? That was a really guiding question for me when I developed O School. Now, three years later, we're forming into a business. You know, we're not a nonprofit. We are a for-profit enterprise and we're also operating in the sexual wellness space. So, you know, recently we've seen reproductive health get massive amounts of funding. So there's things like fertility, menopause, you know, menstruation tech. These have all been categories that in 2016, they saw a billion dollars in investment. If you look at sexual wellness and the pleasure categories, you'll see just a tiny fraction of that happening. And so a lot of what what we are doing is looking at the sexual wellness space um, as a really exciting frontier of of a business to be in, but that is still early. And so if you look at mental health, if you look at some of the other things we've seen, Headspace and Calm and other businesses that have come out, they're kind of this new frontier of wellness, right? It didn't used to be common for meditation and mental health to be as mainstream in the business world. And you know what I believe with my whole being is that sexual pleasure will be seen as part of health and wellness because it is. And so O School, we create content, we are creating the community, we are creating this ethos around that, that sexual wellness is more about wellness than health, or excuse me, than sex. (laughs) That sexual wellness is more about wellness than sex. And that this, you know, multi-hundred billion projected market needs to have players that aren't Planned Parenthood and nonprofits or the porn industry. There's so many more sectors of this business that our building, I actually have a book coming out in November about this very thing. It's called Sex Tech Revolution, the, the Future of Sexual Wellness. And the entire premise is things are changing. This is the last frontier of wellness. It's so genius because you come at it from this venture capital standpoint. So you're really seeing the industry and seeing, okay, where is the big money going as far as sex goes? And from your perspective, it's going to fertility. It's going to menopause. It's going to menstruation tech, as you call it, which I can only imagine what that is. Um, what is that, like cups? Or would it, or a tracking, or tracking your apps? Yeah, you, you see the, the tracking apps, the the actual cups and different or, you know organic tampon. There's so many different things that are happening. Totally, but I can understand why the money's going there. But then there is this hole, and the hole is sexual wellness. But as money is also moving towards meditation apps and all these other things that maybe in the past might not have looked like a business, but now there is money going there then it, it becomes clear that, that from a venture tech standpoint that there's this huge need that's not being filled and it's really important. And like you say, sexual pleasure is a part of health and wellness and part of, of living a whole life. And the idea that there are a billion people out there with sexual, sh- or more than a billion people out there, but there are billions of people out there potentially suffering with sexual shame. And if there's a key to eliminating it, then not only is that an amazing purpose to have in life, but potentially an incredible opportunity. So how is it structured? How are you going about eliminating sexual shame and what are you offering? And mm-hmm. We focus a lot on what people search on Google and we create content and 
you know, we, we create a lot of information and content that helps people, you know, address these things, talk about these things. Uh, we're, you know, a young company. And so we've, we've, we've experimented with lots of different models. We had a live streaming component when we launched, um, we've moved toward more written and video content as we have explored what, what, what's really important to people. And what we are essentially creating is a brand that makes it safe for people to talk about sex and pleasure. And we, of course, do it in a way that's non-judgmental. We had a lot of different voices from a lot of different communities very early on. We had lots of, 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 of people of color, lots of queer people, LGBT. Q was a huge focus considering my background, but it also included things like asexuality, people with different bodies and abilities with their bodies, people with anxiety and depression. Like think about just the average person and all the different things that they will go through in their life potentially, right? Whether it's they have to go on on antidepressants and their sexuality is impacted. Do they have a baby? Do they have erectile dysfunction? Do they, you know, people who go through menopause, um, people who get cancer, sexuality gets impacted, yet it's so taboo that these things often um, people are left to just Google about it. And the problem with that is if you Google about it, what are you going to get? It's like I said, porn, medical websites, maybe cosmopolitan, right? But that's not often nearly enough. I mean, there, there are 4 million YouTube videos when I was struggling with this, but it was completely not curated. You know, some videos you you see are just telling people to have a drink of wine and forget about it. And the clip, the, the real kicker that most people don't know is that the average medical school student only gets about 10 to 15 hours of sex ed total, right? So people are going to doctors and getting questionable information about this. And sometimes, and I would say, I would argue a lot of time, the things that we're helping people overcome Therapists and doctors aren't even the best people to ask. For example, I get questions like, how can I talk to my partner about having better orgasms? I'm not having orgasms and I don't know what to tell my partner to do. Like how is a doctor or even a therapist are not quite sure how to deal with very pleasure focused problems. And, you know, let alone the fact that when I bring a life-size clitoris to conferences, many medical doctors can't even identify them. So it's something that was really written out, written out, like the Grey's Anatomy wrote out the clitoris in one of its editions. It's just something that a lot of people that society would expect to be able to help with these things don't. And so part of what O-School's also doing is creating resources for people that are trusted, that have been reviewed by medical professionals, um, but also are approachable and shame-free and goes there, right? So if people want to talk to us about anal sex, rim jobs, you know, how can I have this desire that some people judge? We are a safe place to talk about all those things, not just, you know, STI prevention and the public health aspects, which are absolutely super important. But I would say that at O School, we really focus on alleviating that shame that comes from growing in a society that, you know, doesn't think that it's okay to talk about pleasure. Yeah, because I can imagine people having a question and then Googling it and getting, at best, low-level blogs and then not knowing who to trust. And so you, are you, how are you finding the teachers then that you can trust? You're saying through medical professionals? Because for sure, there's no way in the world that most people, when they study psychology, they're teaching uh, anatomy of orgasms or, or orgasm tricks so that couples can have better sex, even probably sex therapists don't study that 
it's a whole, it's. They do, but it's, again, everyone's limited by their own lived experience. So one of our rules is that we have a lot of different lived experiences, reviewing and writing content. And so we pick the people based on the question. Some questions absolutely require a medical professional, right? And this is, this is core to who we are. So if you're asking about a medical issue, we're going to have a medical professional address that. And that's important. However, you know, things like how do I enjoy sex and keep my relationship with God? That is a literal question that I got in Kansas City recently. That's something that actually me, you know, with a therapist, with some, you know, with a few other lived experiences can address even better than a medical professional. And so I would say that sex education is not just about educating. It's about unlearning things we've been taught. It's about this, this, this connection and this feeling like you're not alone. There are lots of people who have dealt and, and struggled with this. And these things are just as healing as, you know, the education that you can get in other places. And so I wouldn't say that we, we instead of creating like the perfect answer to every question, we create a lot of different answers for a lot of different questions so that people can match their lived experience with someone. Because again, like when I was growing up, it was Dan Savage. It was, you know, maybe Dr. Ruth. And you would, you know, these are limited experiences, helpful and valuable, absolutely, but limited. Yeah, you would want the ability for Dan Savage, an amazingly brilliant gay guy to answer some things, but then you might want a lesbian, you might want a straight person, you might want different lesbians with different backgrounds answering the same question. I love that you're giving multiple answers to any one question and really allowing for different lived experiences to make up the content. So knowing that the audience of this podcast are mostly female identified and mostly queer identified, what are some questions that come up that I wouldn't even think to ask you that they've come up that would be really juicy to share or talk about or just interesting, like interesting perspectives of the lived queer female experience that gets sent to O-School? There's such a huge range. Uh, recently, we've had people who are navigating you know, differing libidos. Um, we're having, recently we had a 70-year-old woman watch one of our uh, videos about how to go down on a woman or like what what to do with a, you know, with, with oral sex. And the 70-year-old lesbian uh, messaged me and said, oh, I haven't done this with my partner of like, you know, 15 years and a really long time and your video inspired us to try again. <laughs> so, you know, just a lot of people want permission to try things and do new things. Sometimes you have different libidos, but sometimes it's different uh, desires. Maybe someone is kinky and someone is not. We deal with a lot of communication issues, like how can I get my partner to do X, Y, Z kind of issues. And we also have just confidence waning. My body's changed, vaginal dryness. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not finding that orgasm feels the same as it used to. Or, you know, I used to squirt when I was younger and now it's changed or the other way. Uh, you know, there, there are plenty of people who are navigating changing bodies and uh, changing desires who, you know, have anxiety over, over talking to anyone about it. And so we just kind of create that space where we're like, it's okay to maybe, you know, not, uh, I think a lot of queer women, especially who come to us you know, only have certain representations of sex that they've seen. 
And so we give permission, like you can do whatever you want. If you don't want to do this one thing, doesn't mean you're not queer. If you do want to do it, it doesn't mean that you're more queer than anyone else, that everyone has their own desires and that is okay. It sounds really basic, but I can't tell you how many people just need to be validated for their sexuality. There's always a model that they're failing up against. Absolutely. And especially in a couple, when you're talking about differing libidos, where one person wants more sex than the other, or when two people in a partnership want different kinds of sex, how do you suggest dealing with that? Or what are some various kinds of answers that have been put forth on, on O school for the, those kinds of problems? One is an easy one is I recommend the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagowski. I think it's one of the best books written in modern times about actually how we understand the mecha- the mechanism of desire. And instead of it being like this, this sex drive, Dr. Nagowski has created this amazing resource. Come As You Are is a resource. It's like almost reads like a workbook. It's so helpful and allows people to see like the brake pedals and the gas pedals of their of, of their desire, essentially. And I recommend that because I think that is a great resource for anyone who's trying to navigate even just understanding their desires and why they want sex, why they don't want sex, how can they affect their, their sexuality. Definitely recommend that. Uh, my personal tip, so I have my own kind of personal set of advice that I give. I often tell people to create what I call a delight list And what that really essentially is, is just create a list of things that physically and sensationally delight you and start with non-sexual things. So for me, getting my hair blow dried, having people blow dry my hair for me is a very positive, really high sensation, great experience and create that. And it'll eventually can adapt it to be sexual. But I find that a lot of women, period, have trouble connecting with their bodies. And so what whatever gets us connecting back to bodies is because I also think that when people talk about libidos, they're not taking into account the, con- the context and maybe you're just having sex that you don't want to have, but if you transition into sex that you really have more desire for, it can, it can really change things. And so we do that. We also have developed a tool. So O School has a new tool getting released that we have been testing out called the Orgasm Order Form. And we released it, we rebuilt it because, you know, if you go to Whole Foods you or, you know, any sort of grocery store and you want to order a sandwich, for example, sometimes they give you this very helpful sheet where you can say, you know, hey, I want a turkey sandwich. I want tomatoes, but no onions, no pickles, but like extra lettuce or something like that. And we thought, why can't you do that with sex? Like, why can't you say like, oh, yeah, I want like, I want my clitoris touched on the left side in the counterclockwise motion for 20 minutes. You know, it's really difficult to say those words. And so we've developed kind of fun tools to help facilitate sexual communication um, because we find that that's one of the largest barriers is that as many, as much as people want to talk about these things, they are hard to talk about. And so creating tools to make it less awkward um, is something that we also work on. I love the idea of creating a delight list that gets you into what sensationally delights you, what your body enjoys, and getting back into the felt experience of being in our bodies and recognizing us, just getting into our creature nature and what our physical body enjoys feeling is such a great piece of advice because otherwise, if, if sexuality is only in the mind as an idea, 
then how can orgasm even be possible? Because really it can only happen through the body. So that's great advice about people. And then also it, I can also imagine that advice like that when they're thinking about sensationally what delights them in terms of, for example, getting your hair blown out. It takes the pressure off of the genitals, for example, and just allowing their whole body to be, by just allowing themselves to consider pleasure as a full body experience and maybe taking the pressure off of places where they might be feeling some shame. And when you talked about the book Come As You Are and you were talking about the brake pedals or the gas pedals of your desire and when they do or don't want sex, what, what are some takeaways from there? What are, what's, what are some of the best tips you learned from that and what can, what can you share about that idea or ex expand upon that idea so that we have a, I have a better sense of what was really taught in that book? It sounds re really interesting. There's so many things I won't do it full justice, but I know for me, the idea that, that stress is really a big inhibitor for pleasure, right? It's really like, how do you make someone feel safe enough and like open enough to experience the fullness of their, their body. And there, you know, the book goes through like different types of people. So it kind of brings shed some light and I think takes so much of, of what society tells women is that, okay, you know, you, you are failing when you don't feel good. There's something you are doing wrong. And that book, I think, changed that narrative, changes that narrative. And I think part of the things that, you know, I also incorporate is, is you have to know what really gets you going, but also what stops it from going and what inhibits that feeling of, of desire or kills the kills the vibe, right? There there have been jokes in the past about this that I think get at this. For example, like uh, I met some an older uh, couple who told me that you know yeah the best the best foreplay, which I think the whole term foreplay should be retired completely. By the way, the idea that penetrative sex is the only real sex is I think part of what is holding people back. But this person said like the best foreplay is when the kitchen gets cleaned, you know, like they're the meaning that stress and preoccupation and being distracted and screens. There's a great uh, other podcast by me, Dr. Maisha Battle. And she talks about take the screens out of the bedroom and there are various things that inhibit us from connecting and to focus on that instead of it just being as simple as, this person has a high sex drive and this person has a low sex drive. Like that, the book completely explodes that idea that it's inherent to who we are. It's actually very contextual and we can affect it through the things that we do and the ways that we, you know, create spaces for our sexuality. Right. So it might have nothing to do with increasing this woman's sex drive. It might have everything to do with taking the stress off of her plate, making sure the kitchen gets clean, making sure the kids get fed, making sure the job gets done, making sure the bills are paid, and all the different things that could be standing in the way of her pleasure. And in that case, she might be a totally alive sexual being in a totally new way if, if the dishes were clean, for example, so to speak. Absolutely. It also means that you decenter orgasm as the goal. If we know that reaching orgasm is a very anxiety inducing thing, what I tell people who want to be better lovers to their partners who struggle with orgasm is absolutely take orgasm off the table. You know, really set a timer and say, you're not, you're not, you're, you're not allowed to come while, while we have the timer going, like really make it okay to just have non-goal-oriented pleasure. Yeah, because the female orgasm isn't the same as a male. The female sexual pleasure isn't the same as the more straight-line male orgasm. 
And I think that also, I mean, everyone struggles, even people with penises report anxiety around orgasm pressure. But I think you're totally right in that there is even more complexity with, you know, people have been told how elusive female orgasm is. There's been all these myths around it. There's a lot of pressure for it. And I think that the more that people can just try to play and feel good and go after what feels good is, is absolutely groundbreaking. Like it took me years and years and years to connect the idea that sex should just feel good. Even straight people are taught that, you know, there is a correct way to express sexuality within the confines of marriage, within a relationship, right? I see this with casual sex. It's wrong to want just sex. You know, it's wrong to want just a, a purely casual sexual experience from like an app, right? And I think this is modeled for us from the greater society. I mean, if you look at most sex ed happening in the country, which is not a lot, right? It's like the less, the least sex ed happening ever in history right now in the United States. And uh, even wait, ever? What? How could that be? That right now? Oh yeah, I just I wrote a. I'll send you my New York. I wrote. I was. I, I wrote a New York Times op-ed about it, about how it's the age of abstinence and absence only sex ed is negligence. Um, fewer than 50% of schools in the United States right now are offering any sex ed. Two thirds of the ones that do are offering abstinence only until marriage. And when, and you're saying it's the less, least ever, I mean, but I mean, was Thomas Jefferson getting? In the United States, I would say in the last, I would say in the, in like ever is, 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 is not correct, but um, in the last 20 years. In the last right? 20 like years, Back in 99, down. like back in 95, if you went to high school in 1995, 80% of schools did something at least about birth control. That's compared to now where, like I said, 50% of schools are doing nothing. And of the ones that do, 75% are having abstinence only until marriage. And very few states require the sex ed to be medically accurate. You're getting you know, really harmful messages about sex as being the way that people learn about it. And so it doesn't surprise me that people are shamey and judgmental of what people do sexually because that is how we're taught about sex. Yeah, I was in a relatively liberal place in 1995 when I was in high school. And I would say that pretty much what they taught us, they weren't teaching us abstinence, but they were teaching us that we're probably going to get STDs if we do anything sexual, which is unfortunate. Don't get pregnant. Well, they weren't really saying don't get pregnant because most of us didn't, that we weren't in a place where I, there would, maybe in my entire time in high school, there was one pregnant woman in the whole school during my entire high school experience, maybe two, but I'm pretty sure I remember one and that's it. And that stood out. So it wasn't a place where there was a lot of teen pregnancy. So don't get pregnant. Wasn't the prevailing message. The prevailing message was if you start to hook up with other people sexually, you're going to get STDs. There was a lot of fear mongering around STDs from what I remember. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But no, this is, this is not surprising that people talk to each other in this way when you look at how everyone gets introduced to sex. It's it's not like find the sex sex life that works for you, whether that's no sex, all the sex, kinky sex, vanilla sex, queer sex. That's not the message that we're given. We're given a very limited scope of what good or okay sexuality looks like. Absolutely. What are some other interesting questions that are coming up that would be relevant to the community? I actually think that there is a really big surgence of asexual questions coming out now. I, I don't, I, I think that there's lots of reasons that could be. Um, and I think that people are 
again, are, are trying to find intimacy, find sex, find different things. And I think that there's a decoupling happening. I think that used to be that, you know, your partner should, should be a hundred percent of all your needs, sexual, intimate, romantic. And we're seeing, you know, rising rates of open relationships and polyamory. And I'm not saying that these are the right ways to be, but there are multiple options of being in a relationship now. And I hear a lot of people, including queer women, have a lot of questions about what that means. What does it mean to be a queer woman today? Is it different than what it meant 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, I would say. And we help people navigate that. And it's not a clear and easy answer for a lot of people. They have, you know, there's a lot of, depending on which generation you're talking to, there's a lot of, of grappling with, you know, right now we have so many more non-binary people. We have so many more trans people that are, that are out and open and talking about it, which is amazing. And I also see a lot of the same things that I see in women, regardless of their sexualities, which is body shame, genital shame, not liking bodies, not liking our own bodies, not liking genitals. And I would say that those are truly common right now. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. What advice do you have around those things? I, I honestly just, especially around body shame and genital shame, um, thank God for Lizzo. Thank God for all these new representations in pop culture that are coming out and so many people of all ages who are redefining beauty for everybody. I think that's so crucial and so important. I see a lot of body positivity and body neutrality movements on Instagram, on various things, uh, various platforms that are definitely helping. And I also see more communities and, and friend groups talking about it. I think the most wonderful and easy thing to do is to start talking to friends about this, to start opening up spaces where it's okay to talk about sex, pleasure, body, you know, body problems. I think it's starting in lots of different circles. And I want to see that continue to happen. And of course, like at O School, we're trying to create awesome resources for people when they search online, but I think it's going to be a lot of different approaches together. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. It's interesting also you're bringing up the different variations of ways that people can now choose to live their life and their sexual life where it used to sort of be a man and a woman get married. Now there's so many options. Now there's, you don't have to be a man. You don't have to see yourself as a man. You don't have to see yourself as a woman and you don't have to get married or you can be with several people or there's just literally countless options. And in reaction to that, I see a lot of people, again, making each other wrong. So people who have chosen polyamory having an attitude of saying that monogamy is less evolved and that that people who are only monogamous are living against nature and they're wrong. Then there's also people who are monogamous who are feeling very threatened by polyamorous people, feeling as if one person's choice to live polyamorously is somehow a threat to their own desire to live monogamously. And I think it's it's going to be an interesting ride as everyone adjusts to this fact, and I think especially within the community of queer women where a lot of people are very lonely, and so there's a sensation when you meet someone who you're finally attracted to and you feel mutual attraction, if that person wants to be polyamorous and you want to be monogamous, or that person wants to be monogamous and you want to be polyamorous, and there's a frustration of, whereas it's not necessary for the first person you're attracted to to be the one that you're going to be with. It's perfectly okay that that person is going to go on their own journey and do whatever is right for them in their life. And 
we can accept that about other humans. We meet a human, you want this, it's cool that you want that because I'm going to still have love and connection in this lifetime. And it's cool that I want what I want because I'm going to be able to find that from where I want to find it. But, and, and, and learning how not to take personal offense to the desires that other people are having and understanding this is the world is really changing and in the same way that you were talking about how there are many different ways you can order a sandwich or many different things you can have in your sandwich people are going to want their life to be made up of their own ingredients and and really all of us having to trust that we're going to have the love and connection we desire in this lifetime and other people's desire to have completely different things isn't going to take away from us getting what we want. Mm. And I think it's the core of empathy. It, it, another sex educator taught me this. It's that your experience is 100% valid, but it's not universal. Mm. Your experience is 100% valid, but it's not universal. And I think that is hard. And I think I believe that the future is going to be queered up. And it doesn't mean that everyone will be queer. It doesn't mean that everyone will be poly, but it means that we, you know, people are going to have to open their minds to other ways, like you said, of living. And what I hope to create with a shame-free world is people who accept other people for who they are. And that is a very hard thing to do the way that we were all brought up. And, and I think like the key is therapy. I think people need to work on themselves and work on the, work on why they react to people who are different than them. And Absolutely. You know, in this time of technology, you know, coming from the internet tech world, the ways that connection is breaking down, like I think dating apps, I mean, I have a lot of different people who come to me who are struggling and lonelier because of it. And so if you add just like the opening up, I think in some ways the internet has made all of these different communities possible to, to exist, right? Like it used to be that, that poly people didn't know, they couldn't connect to each other, but now uh, you know, the internet has brought these communities together, which is an amazing thing. But on the other, on the flip side, you know, you have dating apps and kind of the internet era creating more distance in some ways and screen time is more distance. And so there's so much more to navigate. I agree. It's not the same world and it's not like there's just gay and straight and some bi people here. The options have really exploded and the the work that I'm doing and I think a lot of people are doing is helping people grapple with that. And and while we're in this bumpy road that we're navigating now where maybe things get a little harder, I, I see a future where maybe things are going to get so much better because I can imagine if I was born today having this question where it's not just assumed that I'm going to be heterosexual and monogamous and have kids and or whatever it is the structure that would have been assumed based on who I where I was from that my life would look like but now the question is what do you prefer how do you want to relate how do you want to structure your relationships and there's a lot of that you can't look to your neighbor for the answer because there is no one answer where you know it used to be that where we were from would dictate how we would live our life but now there's an opportunity for every new human to look inside for those answers which is beautiful Right. It's why I, it, that, that's exactly what, what you're saying is exactly why I have people create this delight list because people don't know what they want. Like you give them a blank slate and say, make a list of things that you want for yourself that feels good. The reason I have people do it is because most people struggle to do it. Yeah. Because when we're younger, I remember being younger and Instead of looking inside to see what I would think was cool, I would look at someone maybe 
an older girl, an older, more popular girl, and what was she thinking was cool, and then therefore that is what was cool, and then therefore that would be what I would pursue, as opposed to having an internal reference. I think in, in, in the culture, at least that I grew up in, there was more of an external reference, but based on all of this variety, I don't see how you can have this much variety and still have an external reference. I think everyone's going to have to shift more towards an internal reference and maybe therefore more authenticity, which could be really cool. So I'm curious then the business model of your company, what is it that you're offering? What is your selling? What is the, how does your, how does O school support itself? Right now we're in a content phase and eventually we do want to provide sexual wellness products, but it's not the focus right now. So is it subscription model? Nope. Right now everything is free. We're venture capital funded and that gives us some time to develop this business model and experiment with different things that our communities want. But you know, this is not an ad supported play. Like I don't really believe that that is the way to go. I think media is, is really changing and dying. And so I don't see that being the, the path. Um, but we do see a huge sexual wellness product industry that we plan to move into, but that's not the focus right now. So when you, in order to create the best sexual wellness product right now, you're really, really getting to deeply understand people and really deeply solve and answer the questions that they have. Absolutely. Glossier was like this, right? Glossier was a blog for four years before they ever offered a makeup product. And, you know, what they were doing was really, like you said, understanding exactly what their audience wanted. And so we're going through the, 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 the journey of understanding what someone who comes from a conservative and, and maybe not so sexually open background, how they get to, you know, buying lubricant, right? Because really sexually open people, they're going to search like lube, Amazon, and they're going to go buy that. But for the majority of people today, they don't even know they need lube. They don't know they want lube. They're judgmental of lube. They were taught that you don't need any lube. There's actually a huge barrier of stigma, and we're getting really good at understanding that. Yeah, or not even necessarily from sexually conservative places, just people who don't know how to get answers to their questions. I know before I came out, this is a, a very significant memory I have of mine. I have a best friend from growing up, um, we we're basically kind of like cousins. And I remember asking her before I came out because I wanted sex to feel good with guys or I wanted, because I wanted it to feel good when I was hooking up with guys, but it never felt good. And so I remember not knowing where to find the answer to this and saying, how do you make it feel good when you're hooking up? Neither of us knew that I was a lesbian. So that would have been great if she could have just said, try girls, that would have been perfect advice. But I remember her saying, um, I think it just happens. <laughs> and I was so confused. And I don't come from a sexually conservative background, but I didn't know where to, I would have loved a resource where I could have started asking questions like that. So I can really, the benefit of what you're creating is so, so completely clear. Do you see it as only, because you mentioned sexually conservative background. Is it only for that? No, it sounds to me like you're. Well, I was saying that that's, there are existing companies that do that. My friends are building Dane products and Mod and Unbound. And I would say that, those, you know, those companies are speaking so well to this new generation of women who are like, my pleasure matters. Like they're amazing. I'm really interested in the other side of the, of, of the coin because they're really not being served. If you, if someone isn't confident enough to follow an Instagram account that is openly sexual, how do you reach them? I'm extremely interested in reaching those people. So it's not that I'm not going after other people, but frankly, they have more resources. They they have more avenues to get help for the things that they want. 
but there are many people who are are, are in a different spot. And I would argue there are way more of those people right now. Absolutely. This is definitely a world of religious conservatism. So that's interesting. So you really are aiming to solve the problem of the person from the conservative background and answering the questions that they don't know even how to ask. Well, then how are you finding them? How are they finding you if you're not... Search. What are the sorts of things they're searching for? Where does my pee come out? Like they search everything, right? I mean, if you think, if you look at like, and it's not just search, right? It's, it's how they're, how they trust sources, right? Like who told them authority figures told people that this is how things are and you're not, you shouldn't talk about pleasure. And so that's why we're building a medical review board. We're really thinking about how to get other trusted authority figures, brands, People who currently are too scared to talk about sex, how can we get them to trust us and partner with us on reaching these communities? Because again, like I could just say, we're here for the most sexually liberated people in the world. And frankly, in some ways that would be easier to do because those people are, 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 are not ashamed of buying lube or vibrators. But what I'm really excited about is how to move people who are struggling to a place where those purchases can be even possible. That is exciting to us. So how do you get them to trust you? Not, not the people who are asking, but then you said the medical professionals. How, how are you getting your, on both sides? How are you getting the trust that you need? You create, you create a voice and a brand. Like we make very specific decisions at O School. If you look at our website, we don't do any nudity. That is a decision we have made that, that you know, we try not to be titillating. We're trying to create the unsexiest brand in sex. Meaning there, you know, a lot of people when they market products, it's a smart strategy to use titillating images. It works. That is not the brand we are creating. We are creating a brand where we use animations and we try to be extremely frank, direct, medically accurate, but also not arousing or titillating. There's no arched backs or like moans or sighs or anything. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with building businesses that way, but that's not how we're doing ours. Because your customers would be intimidated by, by those things and maybe not able to receive the important information to the same extent is what you're saying, right? We try to meet people where they are. We, we try to meet people where they are. And most people are in spaces where they are judgmental, where they have been judged, where they don't even see through their trauma. And I feel like queer people know this, right? The people who are most actively against queer people probably are harboring queer feelings themselves. Same thing here. People who are really struggling with their sexuality tend to really react poorly to very sexual images. Right. I know that for me, it was really hard to be okay with porn, not because there's anything wrong with porn. It's because I was so freaked out about sexuality all my childhood. And so that's what we're really focusing on. And again, there are brands out there that are doing amazing things for sexual wellness that take a different approach. And those approaches are just as valid. We just have a different audience in mind when we develop content. Yeah. And it's so beautiful because we need, we need content for every audience. Is there anything else you wish that every woman or queer person could understand that I haven't asked you about? Your experience is valid, but not universal is an important one. I think we went over that one. The other one is that I think that for a lot of people, sexual pleasure is seen as a niche or nice to have or a novelty. And what I try to make sure that people understand is that whatever it is, whether it is 
being celibate and not having sex or having a lot of casual sex. It doesn't really matter. Unlocking your sexual power is really can be really key to unlocking your general power. Like for me, um, learning about my sexuality and accepting myself was key to my career. And a lot of people don't want to make that jump. They want to keep it really separate, right? And I think that what I hope people realize is that what we talked about already, sexual wellness is more about wellness and health than it is about sex. How did unlocking your sexuality affect your career other than the fact that you created a platform around sex? What do you mean? I don't think that's just what you mean. What do you really mean when you say that? I was actually a venture capitalist when I started to really unlock these things. And what happened is just my intuition was honed, my, my, my leadership skills honed. It's almost like when you're able to ask for what you want and say no to what you don't want in the bedroom, it extends past the bedroom. You start to be able to set boundaries better. You start to, like you said, with a delight list, a lot of people don't know what they want. They don't know if they had infinite options, they don't know which ones they really like. And so when you start getting good at that skill of like, what is it that I want? It translates to every part of your life. Yeah, it makes you more personally powerful and a woman that you can respect because a woman who knows what she wants and can ask for it, that's hot. Not not hot necessarily in terms of sexual attraction. It's just there's an awesomeness to it. And I can understand why, as you say, for anyone who is, is, is repressed in any area, it would impact that as well. It's self-denial, right? Like at the end of the day, I didn't accept myself. I was in denial about my own self because of the way that I was raised. And when you start to accept yourself, great things can happen for you. Like there's a lot of self-limiting beliefs that come from, from being in the closet in any way, right? And it doesn't have to be just queerness. It can be you're in the closet about a kink. You're in the closet about a thing you really want. You know, you're in the closet about something changing. Actually, this is an interesting one. I've talked to a lot of queer, queer women recently who have opened up their idea of what they want. Maybe you're queer your whole life and suddenly you're like, man, sleeping with, a, with someone with a penis sounds really fun right now. And people grapple with that. They don't, people don't like to admit that they can change, but everyone can change all the time. And so being able to not judge yourself makes you not judge other people makes you open to other people's own lived experiences which in general i think is an amazing thing yeah uh we do get connect we're a little overly connected to our identities and how we see ourselves i've heard it described as you know when we start to have our identities questioned we can start to act like shady addicts i've heard someone say we're, we're so attached to that and there's so much benefit to being able to be flexible with 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 who we are, if indeed there's any internal changes, because being in the closet about anything is so exhausting. It takes so much of our power away, having to lie, having to lie to ourselves, having to lie to others. It's uncomfortable, and it takes away so much power. That's all awesome. Is there anything else that you can share that I haven't thought of? No, it's been so fun. Yeah, I'm so impressed with what you're doing. It's so great. Where can people find you personally? Where can people find the business? Where can people go to learn more? Uh, o school is o dot school. That's the whole URL. Just the letter o dot school. And I'm on all the platforms. I'm probably most active on Instagram. You can find me at Andrea Brika. It's my full name. And yeah, that's the best way to to get to us. 
All right. Well, I'm so proud that you are a badass part of our community doing incredible things and a woman entrepreneur. And um, do you identify as a woman? Should I even, is that wrong to identify? Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, you're, you're perfect. Yeah, I, I identify as like a queer and gender queer woman, actually. I think if I had been born 10 years ago, non-binary would have fit, but I've, I've always used like gender fluid, gender queer. But yeah, I still identify as a woman. Mm-hmm. All right, awesome. Well, I'm grateful that you made the time to talk to me today here. And I wish you all the best on this journey. Keep doing amazing stuff. I will. Thanks for having me. Awesome meeting you, Andrea. Thank you. And now I would love to hear from you. We covered a whole lot of things in this interview, but I'm curious, what of the many things we talked about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share dreams together and have adventures together and have passionate intimacy together, then there are resources that can help you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of those things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to finding your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women. 